You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Well, Alexis uh, de Tocqueville, I think I can, we can put a picture of him on the screen. There he is. Alexis de Tocqueville was a French political thinker uh, and historian. He came to America in 1831 to study our culture. And really, Tocqueville came here to test the America experiment. So for those of you who aren't aware, our nation is really one big social experiment built around this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This man... Tocqueville wanted to come here in 1831 and test the experiment and see if it's true, see if it's happening. How is this playing out? Is it working? Um, and so to answer his question, he embarked on a nine-month journey across what was then the 24 states of the United States. And after devoting almost an entire year to soaking up our values, rhythms, habits, rituals, practices that we have in our culture, Tocqueville then wrote and published his most famous book, Democracy in America. Journalist Andrew Hacker, uh, in a recent article in the New York Times, said this about Tocqueville's work. He said, quote, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America surpasses anything written since as an aid to understanding the way we are today. So what Tocqueville wrote almost 200 years ago is considered extremely important and extremely relevant for our lives today. The question is, what did he write? I'm glad you asked. Uh, in his book, Tocqueville leads with the following quote, and this is pretty much his summary commentary on American life. This, remember, this is in the 1830s. Tocqueville said this, quote, Men, that's humanity, men and women both, easily attain a certain quality of condition. He's talking about a quality of life, contentment levels, uh, happiness levels, but they can never attain as much as they desire. It perpetually retires from them, yet without hiding itself from their sight, and in retiring, draws them on. A little bit archaic language, but here's, what he, here's the image he's painting. He's saying that we're chasing a carrot on a stick here. There's this thing that everybody sees, and they're like, ooh, I want that. And then when you pursue it, it retires, right? Like it backs away from you, but it never fully leaves your sight. And then it's retiring, it draws you on, right? So you got Americans marching forward toward this thing they're chasing. That's what, that's the image he's painting. You with me? All right. Here we go. Jump back into it. He says, at every moment they think they are about to grasp this carrot, it escapes at that moment from their hold. They are near enough to see its charms, but too far off to enjoy them. And then listen to this. And before they have fully tasted its delights, they die. And this last sentence has become one of the most transformative sentences of anything that's ever been written about our culture. He says, that is the reason for the strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. Now, 
to get into everything that I want to talk about, to get into this series, I want to focus on that last sentence for just a moment. So can we uh, put the next slide up? And I want you to notice particularly the two pieces that are underlined. What Tocqueville does is he highlights two things for us in his book, Democracy in America, and really it's all summed up in this one sentence. First off, if you're taking notes, notice that after studying our culture, Tocqueville concluded that you and I live in a culture of abundance, of excess. He learned that most Americans make up the, the, the world's top 1% of wealth. I learned that if you make 25K in this day and age, you're in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And if you make 34K, congratulations, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth. That doesn't even inc- include like the stuff you own or the opportunities you have, the, the abundance of opportunities and choices and possessions. That's just, that's just the dollars you make or gross in a year. So he noticed that about us then, that Americans make up the world's top 1% of wealth with more money, more opportunities, more luxury, more possessions, more stuff than any other people on the planet. That's the first thing he noticed. We live in a culture of abundance. And yet, the second thing he observed, and this caught him off guard, is that in spite of our abundance, Americans were some of the most unhappy people he had ever encountered. Notice, look on the screen, notice how he calls it a strange melancholy. Why is it strange? Well, it's strange because we're inclined to think that the more wealth, the more luxury, the more comfort, the more success you have, the happier you'll be. And yet de Tocqueville discovered the opposite to be true. He found that the more people had, the more they wanted. And the more they consumed, the emptier they felt. And so he notices there's a strange melancholy that haunts people in the midst of their abundance. Now that was written almost 200 years ago. I wonder what Tocqueville would say if he came and visited our culture today. Um, I'll give you a hint, not much has changed. Uh, listen to a few basic stats. We've quoted these before, but because the problem hasn't changed, we might as well repeat this, all right? Um, here's a quote. In America, we consume twice as many material goods as we did just 50 years ago. Over the same period, the size of the average American home has tripled in size. And today, the average home contains about 300,000 items. On average, our homes contain more televisions than people. I think that's funny. More screens than people. Like, you can, everybody can watch one, but we need eight for the four people that live here or something. Eight screens. Um, the U.S. Department of Energy reports that due to clutter, 25% of people with two-car garages don't have room to park both cars inside, and another 32% have room for only one vehicle in the garage. Guilty. All right. Um, Home organization, which is the service that's trying to find places for all our stuff, is now an $8 billion industry, growing at a rate of 10% each year. So if you're looking for somewhere to invest, you might want to invest in that. Um, still, actually invest in the kingdom of God. That's really what you should do. Uh, still, one out of every 10 American households rents off-site storage which is the fastest growing segment of the commercial real estate industry over the past four decades. Now, what I'm about to say next, I heard a pastor say this. I had to go fact check him because I was like, that can't be right. turns out he was right. A recent study found that there are 7.3 square feet of storage unit space for every American, which means we could literally sleep our entire nation in storage units. Um, So why all the homeless people? I'm trying to figure that out. We We have enough space to sleep 
I don't know, our entire nation. When you consider all our spending and consuming, it's no surprise to learn that the average American has $15,000 in credit card debt. Now, here's the question. Um, De Tocqueville said we were depressed back then. Are we now? Has all our, our consumerism and excess made us any happier today than it did 200 years ago? Well, according to all the research, the answer is a resounding no. Okay? Uh, we're living in what sociologists and psychologists are calling, quote, uh, a happiness crisis. In a recent uh, article in the Seattle Times, you can see it there on the screen, Dick Meyer, he summed it up really simply like this. Despite the statistics that prove that Americans never had it so good, we don't feel so good. We've got an abundance of stuff, but we don't feel that great. Another writer by the name of Greg Easterbrook recently wrote a book called The, P- the Progress Paradox. The subtitle is How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And here's a quote. He says, adjusting for population growth, 10 times as many people in the Western nations today suffer from unipolar depression or unremitting bad feelings without no specific cause than they did half a century ago. And then he simply says this, Americans have ever more of everything except happiness. What a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of their abundance. What these writers and many other, who aren't Christians, by the way, they're just observing the culture and telling the truth. What they're saying is the same thing Tocqueville said 200 years ago. There's a strange melancholy that plagues our culture in the midst of our abundance. And here's what they're picking up on, and this is the big idea, okay, that I want to wrestle with as we kick off this series. It's simply this. And you know, you know this because you're living in it. But let's just actually talk about what's real here for a second. There's a story in our culture that says the more you have, the happier you'll be. Are, y'all, are you familiar with that? It's, it's, it's the story, it's, uh, Michael, Michael Hyatt calls it the more myth. And we're all victims and participants, active participants in the more myth. The more myth is simply this myth that the good life is found in abundance. So more money, more possessions, more entertainment, more pleasure, more accomplishments, more, 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 more. If you could just have more fill in the blank, then you'll be really alive. Your life will be complete and you'll be happy. And yet research, and you don't even need the research because your own experience tells you a different story. Turns out the more you have, the more you want, right? Um, turns out the more you consume and fill yourself and fill the margins of your life, the more empty you become. And so consumerism, that's what this is. Consumerism is just the quest for more, more, chasing this carrot on a stick. Consumerism and the quest for more have left most people in our culture burned out, anxious, addicted, exhausted, and enslaved to a life with no margin. And all the research has shown you that our brains are literally breaking down. Our bodies are breaking down. Our souls are breaking down. Because we're caught in this vicious cycle of, I can see the charms of this thing, like Tocqueville said, and I reach to grab it, and I hold it for just a second, and it pulls itself from my grasp, and it retires from me, and I keep running after it. And guys, it's this vicious rat race. This vicious rat race, which, by the way, is the definition of addiction. It's the definition of addiction. The question that I want to ask us is, how do, we in our, how do we as disciples of Jesus tap into the power of the Holy Spirit to break a stronghold of consumerism that keeps us enslaved? 
How do we not get sucked into the vortex of the quest for more? And how do we instead become resilient disciples of Jesus who are actually experiencing the abundant life Jesus has invited us into? I'm glad you asked that question. The answer to that question is the way you experience this life, the way you open up your life to experience real life that Jesus has for you is by adopting his lifestyle and his way, this core practice that you see in his life that we call simplicity. On that note, look with me at Luke chapter 12 and let's see what Jesus has to say about this uh, and how we can actually apply it. And as I read through this, I'm going to stop a few different times and I'm going to point out at least three things, if you're taking notes, that Jesus wants us to see as we work towards embracing a life of simplicity. Three things Jesus wants us to see. Uh, Luke chapter 12, to set the context, we're told in verse 1 that Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of many thousands. So imagine Jesus and his disciples surrounded by a mass amount of people and this huge crowd. And then we pick up the story in verse 13. Here's what uh, it says, Luke says, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to invite, to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> so here's what's happening. You got two Jewish brothers. Apparently their father has died. And in Jewish custom, that means that the inheritance is supposed to be split between them. But one brother's not playing fair. And so the other brother uh, wants his money and he wants his stuff, right? That he's owed. And he wants Jesus to do something about it. So he says to Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to give me my stuff and give me the money that he owes me. And I love Jesus' response in verse 14. Look what he says. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or a mediator between you and your brother? That's Jesus for, dude, don't drag me into this. <laughs> like, uh, I've seen what happens when somebody dies and the family turns into vultures and goes at each other's throats. Don't drag me into the middle of your family drama, Jesus says. Um, and so he doesn't take the bait. However, look at what he does do. In classic Jesus fashion, he sees this as an opportunity and he turns it into a teaching moment for the crowds. And so he says this in verse 15. Jesus said to them, to, to these brothers and to the crowds, watch out, right? And I, I kind of shout it because it's, it's, a, it's a command, it's exclamation mark. Watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And that last line is so powerful, it's worth memorizing. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I said there's three things that Jesus wants us to notice. The first one is this. Notice how Jesus connects the dots between consumerism and our longing for life. Don't, don't miss this, okay? Pay attention. Jesus takes this brother's desire for his inheritance and he makes a beeline to his heart. And Jesus says, hey, wake up and be careful and guard yourself against the desire for stuff and the desire to consume because that's not going to give you what you're really looking for because what you're really looking for is life. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to look for life and all this other stuff that, that you're trying to build and acquire and inherit, if you're going to look for life and all that stuff, you're just going to end up singing that U2 song, right? You're going to consume more and more and more and more, and you're going to wake up every day hungry and aching for more, and you're going to be like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
And Jesus says, because what you're looking for is life, and life ain't in that stuff. The philosopher James K. Smith says it like this. To be human, this is actually like, this is fundamental to our humanity. You can't escape this. Is to lean toward some vision of the good life. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you're working so hard to build? That's why you're like renovating your house and working so hard and doing everything. We all want a life that's beautiful and meaningful and full of love and joy and liberty and happiness. The America experiment is built on this. And it's, it's built into our DNA. We all want something. We're desperately looking for something that's going to make us feel truly alive. I just, that's why, by the way, like, we'll do crazy stuff and blow up our lives just to feel alive. We do self-harm sometimes just to feel alive. We want something that will give us real life. Jesus knows this about us. He knows this is what we're looking for, and so do modern advertisers. So we live in an economy and a culture uh, built on what one secular writer calls, quote, the economic gospel of consumption. Gospel means good news, right? It's the promise of life, liberty, and happiness found in Jesus Christ. And it's this promise of life. And so what these marketers are saying is, yeah, we, we're preaching the same offer. We're just saying that instead of life being found in Jesus, life is found in this other stuff. And if you want the good life, you just need to buy this product. You need a bigger house or a better car or more accessories for your truck or another gun or like a new iPhone or another pair of shoes or like you, you fill in the blank. If you want life, you just need one more thing and then you'll be happy. Guys, this is the message we're being told and sold all day. Um, like it's no secret that we are, we have about 5,000, average of 5,000 advertisements a day that come at us and they're aimed at your unconscious desires for life. They're not aimed at your needs. Like you, you need this product cause it's going to like, you need, you need water <laughs> like, or whatever, but like it's, it's aimed at you, listen, you want this. And the reason you want this is cause this is going to send you off into the sunset happily ever after you watch watch any car commercial and it's 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 all subliminal of like this right here is going to make you happy it's going to give you the good life it's and jesus says don't fall for that it's a bait and switch you consume you consume you consume and every time you come up empty life jesus says is not found in your abundance it's going to make you empty and it's going to make you anxious and that's the second thing jesus wants us to notice okay Skip down to verse 22 and look at what Jesus says to his disciples. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear, for life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Notice in verse 22, he starts with the word therefore. Anytime you see therefore in the Bible, you have to ask, what is it therefore? I went to four years of seminary to learn that. So, um... It's a really important word, though, because in the context of, of, a, of a logical conversation, when I say, therefore, I'm, I'm about to build on what I just said, right? I'm about to make a point based on what I just said previously. What did Jesus just say previously? Life is not found in an abundance of possessions. And then he says, therefore, 
in light of the reality that this is not where life is found, this is not where the, the good life is not found in consuming more, 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 don't worry about those things. Jesus is saying, quite simply, when your life is not rooted and built on your stuff, you don't have to worry. On the contrary, when your life is rooted and built on your stuff, you better worry. You have reason to worry because all that stuff can and will be taken away from you. It's the reason why Jesus goes on and says this in verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will, that what? Will not wear out. Build a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, gather around everybody. There's a whole crowd. He was just speaking to your unconscious desires for life. Now he's going to talk directly to your logical brain. And he's saying, I want to invite you guys to think about this. Think logically with me for just a second. If you build your life on stuff that wears out and stuff that fails, stuff that thieves can steal and moths can destroy, you build your life on temporal stuff, your joy will be temporal. Like you're, it's going to rob you of life. If you build your life on all that stuff's unstable, right? Meaning you, you can't keep it. It's not going to go with you. It's all fragile. At any moment, it can be taken from you. So the logic here is really simple. If you, if you put your trust in that which is unstable, you will be an unstable person. Notice Jesus is connecting the dots between consumerism and anxiety. If you build your life on this stuff, you have reason to worry. If you don't build your life on this stuff, you don't have reason to worry. The image I have in my mind for this is, um, you remember that Jenga game like with a big wooden tower? And you pull out just the wrong piece, pulls out, and like, like you take the wrong piece out, and then the whole tower comes crashing down. Jesus says when you build your life on temporal treasures instead of heavenly treasures, when you invest in that stuff, that Jenga tower is your life. And all it takes is one like piece being, being knocked out, and the whole thing comes crashing down. Now, let me put into words what you're feeling, like what I feel, like every weekday, 9 to 5, and like even in the morning and the evening. Let me, let me tell you what you feel. The energy, the mental, emotional, spiritual energy that goes into holding that little house of cards together and trying to keep everything you've acquired while also trying to get more and running around and trying to manage all that and keep that from falling down and keep yourself from losing what you've acquired, the energy it takes to hold all that together is the definition of anxiety. And the word Jesus uses for anxiety is literally this word that means to be torn apart. It means to exist in a state of pieces. So we're pulled apart, our hearts, focus, and attention pulled apart in a million directions by all this other stuff that we're running after. And by the way, that's where Jesus goes next. We're running after this stuff. We're, that's important. Look at what he says as he continues to build on this. He says this in verse 29. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs 
after all such things. He says the pagan world is running, picture that, running after these things. I would circle or underline the word run. Jesus is is connecting the dots between consumerism to hurry. He's saying that a life of consumerism is a life of hurry. Um, In his book, uh, An Unhurried Life, he also wrote An Unhurried Leader, which I've read. I've never read An Unhurried Life, but this is a quote that uh, I came across this week. Alan Fadling says this. It's really short. It really sums it up. The drive for more is an engine for hurry. The drive for more will speed up the overall pace of your life because more is never enough. So you get... And you have to have more. And you get, and you have to have more. And like Tocqueville said, it's just always slipping from your grip, your, your grasp. And you just keep chasing this carrot on a stick. And it keeps you running and running and running and running and running. Ronald Rollheiser says this leads into a life of what he calls pathological busyness. Pathological busyness is you work too many hours to earn more money to buy more stuff you don't need. And on top of that, you say yes to too many things, too many opportunities, choice overload, too many kids involved in too many sports and too many activities, um, and, and we're always multitasking. Which, by the way, did you know there's no such thing as multitasking? Um, there, <laughs> you can't. There's no such thing as it. When your attention is divided, that's a divided self. The Bible calls what we call multitasking, the Bible calls it anxiety. But we're always multitasking. We're always doing more than one thing, like texting and driving. <laughs> or uh, playing on our phones while watching TV. Is anybody else double screening it? Or am I the only one? Oh, man, I love to. Don't get me wrong. I love double screening it. I mean, it's like you talk about there's a, there's a difference between renewing habits and then just relaxing. That can be very relaxing, and it can become enslaving. It's definitely not very renewing. And by the way, I'll just I'll put myself like, I'll, I want you to know uh, that I'm like under the blade of this critique. I'm the worst person to teach on this, which maybe makes me the most qualified. I don't, I don't know how that works. But I just need you to know that uh, just because I'm up here saying all this, like, doesn't mean I have this figured out. Like, I find myself at night on, on my phone scrolling through Amazon and Zappos, Okay. And my four, like Achilles heel, my wife's here on the front row can tell you, are records, hats, jackets, and shoes. I'm not, I mean, I don't, I don't hunt, so I don't need, I don't need guns, okay? I've got a, I've got an old 12, like 12 gauge that maybe works, uh, that my dad gave me when I got married, but like, I'm not trying to buy that kind of, that's, those are my Achilles heel, okay? Hats, jackets, shoes, and records. And I'm all the time finding stuff where I'm like, oh, it's just something I just have to have. On top of that, just like you, I feel the pressure to overwork, overperform, overcommit, overdo it, put way too many things in my schedule that I can possibly do in one day. And what Rollheiser is getting at with pathological busyness is this has reduced us to a life with no margin and no space to just live our lives and breathe. Every space we have is filled up with an activity because we can't be still. So what Rollheiser says is we're losing the art of being human and having limits. And we're losing the ability to do relationship. 
we're losing the ability to be fully present to our souls, to one another, to our families and friends, to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're losing the ability to be present to God himself. Hurry, it's no secret, kills our capacity for love and relationship. That's why Jesus uh, calls it pagan in verse 30. It's, it's hurry. A life of consumerism and hurry is incompatible with the way of Jesus. Because you can't do hurry and love at the same time. <laughs> love takes time. Relationship and intimacy requires space and time to be cultivated. Hurry doesn't have room for it. So here it is. Here's the, the bottom line here. Jesus is trying to, he's inviting us to see you can't do life with Jesus in his kingdom and run after all these other things. That brings us back to our original question. Okay, if that's true, how do we get off the hamster wheel? How do we break out of this vicious cycle? How do we go from being slaves to more to being resilient disciples who are experiencing the good life Jesus has called us into? To answer that question, look at verse 31, because here's this is where Jesus wants to take us into some of the application here. Jesus starts verse 31 and he says, but, okay, that's a, I learned an English class a long time ago, that's a contrasting conjunction. So he's about to, to contrast, he's making a contrast for you. Jesus says, but, let me show you a better way to live. Instead of buying into the, the, the more myth that life is found in abundance, Instead, Jesus says, seek the kingdom of God and all that other stuff will take care of itself for you. Or I like the way he says it in Matthew's gospel. Seek first, seek ultimate, the kingdom of God. And for the whole sermon, this is what I've been driving to get to, okay? This is Jesus' definition of a life of simplicity, If you're looking for a definition, you want to know what simplicity is? Simplicity is seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, make your relationship with God and living for his kingdom the singular focus and obsession of your heart. The singular obsession and pursuit of your life. Reorient all of life around this one aim. The wholehearted pursuit of God's presence and God's purposes. That is a life. That's what Jesus is getting at. That's what it means to practice a life of simplicity. Now, I want to I want to uh, camp out on this for a second. I want to nuance this definition, and I want I want to massage it a little bit. So, let's talk about it. Okay. On one level, simplicity. What Jesus is getting at is really all about the disciplined pursuit of less. And right now, you see a lot of uh, writers and bloggers and stuff in our culture talking about this. And they're not Christians. And by the way, as pastors, we love when, when in the secular world, non-Christians come to the same conclusions as, as we are. Of like, look like they're saying the same thing. This is destructive. This is totally, they're, they're preaching Jesus and saying that something's broken here. We, we need a better way. Jesus happens to be that better way. And so, but they're writing about this problem in our culture. And, and sometimes they don't call it simplicity. They might call it simple living, essentialism, minimalism. It's all getting at this radical idea that less is more. And so simplicity is we should limit our number of possessions and expenses and activities and social obligations so we can reorient our, our lives around what matters most. 
That's what, so in, in one sense, it's about decluttering your life. And that's, that's what Jesus says in verse 33. Sell all your possessions. Take some stuff to Goodwill, bro. Get rid of some stuff, right? Like clean out, clean out your attic and your garage or something and then invest your time and energy and resources into what really matters. On one level, that's simplicity. It's about decluttering your life, making room in your life for the stuff that matters most. But listen to me. This is where I want you to lean forward. This is, this is where Jesus is, is about to hook us, okay? Because that's really just simplicity on a surface level. The simplicity of the way of Jesus that he's calling us into is actually a whole lot deeper than that. On a deeper level, according to Jesus, simplicity is not just about decluttering your life. It is first and foremost about decluttering your heart. And Jesus is not trying to hide that from you. If you read this passage carefully, he's been aiming at your heart the whole time. He says it in verse 29. Don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Again, in verse 34, one of the most famous and powerful verses in the New Testament. Be careful what you make your treasure, because where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. Jesus is getting at your heart. And when Jesus talks about your heart, by the way, he's not talking about the physical organ in your chest that's pumping blood throughout your body. When Jesus talks about your heart, he's talking about the center of your person. My favorite definition is Paul David Tripp's from years ago. The heart is the causal core of your personhood. It's the thing inside of you that is driving and motivating and causing everything you think, feel, want, dream, desire, and do. Uh, to quote the old proverb, Proverbs 4.23 says it like this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So in light of that, what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 12 is the re- You want to know why we overconsume? He's, he's telling us. He's giving us a hint. Why do we do the things we do? Why, I don't want I don't want to wear myself out with a schedule with no margin. So why do I do that? Why do I say yes to too many things? Why am I a slave to my iPhone? I know this is not yielding life, giving life. You want to know why we overconsume? Why we're neurotically busy? Why we're looking for life in all the wrong places? Jesus says it's because first and foremost, at the deepest level, we have a heart issue. Here's what that means. This is why this is so important for us to get. This means that it's not enough for you to go home and just declutter your desk, declutter your desk at work, declutter your email inbox, declutter your garage, your attic, your uh, closet or whatever. It's not enough to do that if you don't declutter your heart. How many of of you are familiar with that game Whack-A-Mole? Remember the game Whack-A-Mole where you like the mole pops up and you you smack it, but then it pops up over here and you smack it and then it pops up over here? This is Whack-A-Mole. Like if you go home and you declutter one thing, it's just going to come out sideways in another place. What Jesus is saying is that true simplicity is about first and foremost decluttering your inward being. Richard Foster in his commentary on this passage, summarizes Jesus' definition of simplicity like this. Quote, Simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle. 
I'm not saying don't go home and declutter your closet. You probably should. But what I'm saying is notice the order. Simplicity is first an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. I love that line from St. Augustine, who uh, was also commenting on this passage of where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When when Augustine said uh, in his confessions, he, he, quote, opening line, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I actually believe that if you're tuned in, if you haven't checked out yet, this is the one thing Jesus has called a meeting with you about this morning and with me. This is the one thing he wants to say to us. He's inviting you to embrace the reality that your heart, the causal core of your being, was made for him. You want to know why you can consume all this other stuff and it leaves you empty? It's because your heart is not compatible with all that other stuff. It was made to hook up to and connect to the only source of life that exists and he has a name and it's Jesus. Like your, our, our own experience is telling us, guys, the hamster wheel ain't working. It's leaving you more burned out and addicted and broken than, than when you first got on it. It's because your heart's not made for that stuff. Paul says it like this in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things exist and for whom we exist. Who, for whom do we exist? God, you, you exist for Him. Your heart was made for Him. Here's what this means. Write this down. God and God alone is the true magnetic north of your heart. It's it's the reality your heart is chasing and drawn to. I think Jared quoted a couple of weeks ago one of my favorite lines from G.K. Chesterton when Chesterton said, every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God, right? That's what his heart's... He's looking for magnetic north. His heart's wandering east of Eden in a broken world trying to find its way home. And it's knocking on the door of a brothel looking for home, looking for God. And the same can be said about us in everything that we consume. Every time you add to cart and you click submit complete purchase, it could be said that maybe you're looking for God. Every time you say yes to too many things because you fear somebody else's disapproval, the approval you're looking for is found in God. Uh, Every time you reach for your phone to numb out and escape your busy, broken life, the Savior you're looking for is God. Every time you chase the next upgrade, I mean, fill in the blank. What you're looking for, what I'm looking for, what our heart's searching for is God himself. And maybe you hear me say all this and you're like, well, man, does that mean that shopping is bad? Does that mean I can't renovate my bathroom? We're getting ready to renovate. We have two bathrooms that are just, I'm thankful we have two. That's, again, top 1% of the world's wealth. So thankful I got two bathrooms. They're also like the most broken down, like, it's, it's a mess. We got to renovate them. Okay. So I'm going, I'm going to renovate my bathroom. So maybe as you hear me say this, you're going like, well, golly, then it's like, is it wrong to upgrade to the new iPhone? 
Are you saying it's wrong to like buy a new shirt? Or like, what are you trying? And let me say this. First of all, if you're thinking that way, the reason, I, the reason I'm going there is because that's where my heart goes. Okay. I start getting a little defensive here. And that's okay. That's, that's a clue that Jesus is pressing something on. The Spirit is massaging something and bringing it to the surface in your heart. You're, you're kind of being provoked a little bit. That, little, that defensiveness, that's a, that's a good sign, okay? That means that the Spirit's at work, all right, if you feel that. And so are, am I saying that we can't, like, buy stuff and, and God's a cosmic killjoy and he doesn't want you to go out and buy good food and, like, what? No, it's not, it's not what I'm saying at all. Here's what I'm saying. The simplicity that Jesus calls us into is simply that it's, it's learning to, it's, let me say it like this. The goal of simplicity is to learn to live all of life with an undivided heart. I don't, I don't care if you renovate your bathroom. Go for it. Can you do it with an undivided heart? That's the goal. David prays this prayer in Psalm 8611. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. If David prays for an undivided heart, what does that tell you he's struggling with? A divided heart, right? He's got a divided heart. So do I. The reason why our lives are disordered is because our heart is divided and our loves are disordered. Our desires contradict each other and they compete for our heart. Like there's a war, there's a war taking place and, and it's, it's taking place on the turf of your heart. I want God, but also want more money. I want God, but also want more stuff and more status and more earthly pleasures and more comforts. And my heart gets splintered and fractured and fragmented and pulled in a thousand directions. And ultimately, this does not lead to life. It's not found in abundance. This leads to death. That's what Jesus wants us to see. In light of that, here's our closing question. How do we practice this inward simplicity that Jesus calls us to? How do we learn to cultivate an undivided heart that is that is that loves God wholeheartedly and that leads to a wholehearted life? And the answer is the way you practice this kind of simplicity, it's it's not always easy, but it really is this simple. The only way to constantly reorder and retrain your heart to love God above all else is you have to form new habits, new habits of love and desire into your life that keep you tethered to the way of Jesus. You Guys, you've heard us say this time and time again. The things you do do something to you. Your habits have a way of getting into you to your, through your core, and they shape and point your heart in certain directions. They shape your loves. That's why the more you do something, the more you want to do it. The more you do something, the more you love it because your habits shape your loves. In a lot of that, listen to this line from uh, James K. E. Smith. We've quoted him earlier. He defines discipleship as a journey of rehabituating our desires, our hearts. Here's what he says. It's kind of a lengthy quote. He says, this is from his book, You Are What You Love. He says, discipleship is rehabituating your heart rehabiting your loves, recalibrating that compass that's looking for true north, right? The compass of your desires and longings. So discipleship then is not a matter of simply inquiring information, filling up your intellect with all the right beliefs and ideas and doctrines, although that's important. It's not less than that, but it is more than that. It has to spill over into a way of life that reforms my very wants. 
Jesus is asking me, what do you want? And what he wants is for you to want differently, to want what he wants. This requires recalibrating and retraining our loves, our longings. In essence, learning to love takes practice. I'm sorry, you can't think your way into it, he says. And I love this. Even a brilliant sermon isn't enough to enable you to fully reform your loves. He's putting the pa- taking the pastors off the hook. We can't change your hearts. Our loves are trained by the rhythms, routines, practices, and communities that we place ourselves in, that we immerse ourselves in, and submit ourselves to. With that in mind, let me give you five basic habits of simplicity, five basic rhythms of simplicity. And these are things that we're going to practice together as a community, as a church. Um, in your in your missional community, uh, you, you have this built out in your discussion guides so you can talk through it. And then you have some practical tips to help you try it on and practice it. And then to encourage one another and hold one another accountable, not just to like do this once, but to build this into your life and make this a way of life because it's the way of Jesus. Okay, I'll be really quick here. Five rhythms of simplicity. First off, practice silence and solitude daily. It's just a way of slowing you down and interrupting your life and recentering your heart in the presence of God, which is what you're longing for. And this is not a, you've heard us talk a lot about silence and solitude. It's not a one-size-fits-all practice. It's your relationship with God, so you get to figure out how you want to date him. How do you want to spend time with him? How does he want to spend time with you? At the very least, this is a daily rhythm of getting alone and spending time in the quiet, alone with yourself and with God. Read a psalm, read some scripture, meditate on it, chew on it, breathe. Just breathe. Recenter yourself on the reality that you are in God's presence. Soak it up and enjoy him. Silence and solitude daily. You can do it first thing in the morning is ideal, but if you can't, that's okay. If you stay at home moms, if you have to just hide in the bathroom and hope that nobody like kills themselves while you're in there for five minutes, that's fine. You just, you build this in however you can. God is uber gracious with you and he wants to help you build, build this habit into your life. Number two, practice Sabbath weekly. Sabbath is a 24 hour period where human beings get to stop and do nothing related to work. Put it down. Realize you're not that important. God can run the universe without you. And you just rest. And you enjoy God and, and, and His goodness and all of creation. I love this line from Mark 2.27 where he says, Sabbath was made for the man, not man for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for you, Jesus says. God built this rhythm into the fabric of creation. He designed it to work this way where you work six days and then you rest for one. A.J. Swoboda says it like this, and I have to quote it. He says, Sabbath interrupts the lie that your life is found in what you consume or what you produce. And it reminds you that in Christ, you are loved for who you are, not what you do or what you have. And then you just get to embrace that as your identity and rest in that and learn to carry that posture into the other six days of the week. But if you don't slow down on Sabbath, the overall pace of your life and your consumerism will consume you. It will overwhelm you. Um, number three, practice saying no in order to say yes. So, you know, we talk a lot about the good stuff that or the stuff that Jesus did, but we talk, don't talk as much about the things he didn't do and the things he said no to. And they weren't bad things. They were sometimes really good things, but Jesus still said no in order to do something better in order ultimately to do what the father put on his heart to do. 
So you have to realize that every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And that's, that's, that's important. Do you realize that none of us has a problem saying no? We're all fine with saying no. Because every time you say yes, there is an implicit no in that. If I say yes to this evening commitment, I'm saying no to dinner with my family. If I say yes to jumping on my phone and email and work first thing in the morning, I'm saying no to time alone in the quiet with God. Every time you say yes, you are fundamentally saying no. So the question is, what are you saying yes to? What are you saying no to? And some of us, most of us, need to say no to some things so that we can say yes to some uh, more important things, to what really matters most. Fourth, think before you spend, or better, pray before you spend. And really the idea here, idea here is no impulse buying. Um, you know, we, we, it's amazing how much we spend spur of the moment because we see something where we just have to have it. Like I was, I can't, I mean, I'm a dude and the chip and Joanna Gaines stuff at Target gets me every time. Like I can't walk by it and see it with, I'm like, man, I need that coffee mug or like whatever it is. Like this would be a great throw pillow. And yes, guys, I like throw pillows. Okay. So I'm into fashion and clothes and throw pillows and it's fine. Okay. Um, so like, here's the thing. I'm not saying that stuff's bad. Again, I'm just th- saying the goal is can you, can you buy that stuff with an undivided heart? Can you spend your time and your money with Jesus as the king of your life? Can you do that? Fifth and finally, okay, share what you have. And when I say share, I really mean get into the habit of giving things away. Jesus said it's, it's more blessed to give and, than to receive. Maybe you should just test him on that and see if, he's, if it's true. Uh, recently, we decluttered, cleaned out uh, our garage. It took me a, an entire day. I still, I still can only park one car in there. Um, and we took like seven bags to Goodwill of clothes. And then on top of that, a bunch of toys and stuff. And I don't say that to brag about... I say that as a confession of my consumerism, okay? Um, and I say that to say... We put Jesus to the test, and it was actually true. It really blessed us to give that stuff away. And our family is learning that spending less means we have more room in our budget to be generous, which is the life Jesus calls us to as disciples. Five rhythms of simplicity, five new habits, uh, silence and solitude daily, Sabbath weekly, say no to say yes, think before you spend, share what you have. All of these practices, the goal, guys, all these practices are a way of recalibrating your heart to true north, Recon- helping you stay consciously connected to and aware of the presence of God, bringing God from the margins of your chaotic life back into the center and reorienting everything else around him. And let me just close with this thought. This is not next-level discipleship. That's what's so convicting to me. This is 101 stuff. To be a disciple of Jesus means you reorient all of your life around loving God and loving what God loves. And you bring your budget, your schedule, your, your habits, your rhythms, all that stuff under the lordship of King Jesus. And you trust that he knows how to run your life better than you do. This is basic discipleship. And it's the life Jesus is inviting us into. And I do mean it's the life Jesus is inviting us into. Jesus said this in John 10.10. 10, and we'll close on this line. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says there's a thief that wants to lie to you, steal from you, and destroy you. And what he does is a subtle manipulation. Jesus says, I came that you may have abundant life. The thief says life is actually found in abundance. 
It's a very subtle manipulation. And what Tocqueville reminded us of 200 years ago, what Jesus reminded us of long before that, is life is not found in abundance. Oh, what a strange melancholy that shows up in utter destruction if you want to build your life on that kind of stuff. Jesus says, I came to give you the rich and satisfying life that you're looking for, abundant life. And to give us that rich life, Jesus spent everything he had. To make you full of life, Jesus emptied himself to death. And he gave his life on a Roman cross where he poured out his blood and his body was broken in two. And every week we come to this moment where we reorient around this truth and we don't just believe it up here, but we consume it into our bodies by taking communion. So um, you have there in your seat is the juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed generously for you. And the, the bread represents his body that was torn in two, broken in two to put you back together. And if you're a disciple of Jesus in this room, uh, we encourage you to take this meal and let this be a reminder of where your hope is found, where life is found. Let this be an act of even repentance and worship as you, as you reorient once again around the way of Jesus and are met with his grace. And if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, we're so glad you're here. Our invitation to you would be instead of to take this meal, uh, which is just like we bought this on Amazon, I think. Like there's nothing magic in this meal. This meal is, is pointing at um, where your hope is found. And if your hope is not found in Jesus, uh, rather than taking this meal, would you just take Jesus? We encourage you to take Jesus at his word today. It, embrace him as the life that you've been longing to find and searching for. And if you want to talk about that today, like I'm, I'm available, Jared's here, Robert's here, we would love to talk with you or anybody that you came here with would love to have that conversation with you. I'm going to pray as the band comes forward and we're going to sing one more song and we'll take communion together. So would you join me in prayer? And Father, I pray right now that you would, I ask that you would work Holy Spirit on our hearts to help us to uh, take this word and actually do it. I know that's what I need help with. I mean, I pray this is not another moment where we come together and hear a sermon and um, like have a lot of energy to want to make some changes, but, but like nothing sticks. I pray that instead this will be a moment where you truly get a hold of our hearts and you reorient us. And I pray for those here or those watching online who... Man, they're far from you, and um, Jesus, they, they're, they're running from you, running to all these other things the way the pagan world does. I, I pray that you just interrupt them in your, in your grace, and you would um, reveal yourself to be the good news that they're longing for. And would you grant faith to them today? Would you save? Would you break in and save and heal and restore? Only you can do that. A, a sermon can't do that. I mean, we can't, we, we're, we're totally dependent upon you. So have your way with us, Jesus, I ask in your name. Amen.